If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is our third week considering these first 18 verses, and we will have uh, one more Sunday thinking on these verses uh, next week as we gather with Encounter. We'll close things out, focusing especially on verse 18, but also some of what we're going to look at um, today, which is verses 14 through 17. Um, I want to come back to some of those verses uh, in part because I feel like I'm just grasping this morning, maybe, <laughs> the connection between uh, that, that John is making with Moses. And uh, I don't feel firm enough yet to make any public statements about what I think it means. So <laughs> we'll think some more. I invite you to think with me on verses 14 through 18 throughout um, this coming week. And then we will close things out with, that, with John chapter 1 next Sunday. But let's begin and just read John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. I hope that you've been able to meditate on and even memorize some of these verses, but hear them again. And again, we'll focus on uh, verses 14 through 18. But verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but, to, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In A Charlie Brown Christmas, when Charlie Brown, in exasperation, asks, does anyone really know what Christmas is all about? Linus wisely walks to the center of the stage and reads the account of the birth of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. But I think Linus could also have simply read the first five words of John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Does anyone know what Christmas is really all about? The Word became flesh. 
This feels in many ways, I think, like the, the climax of this passage, like the statement that we have slowly been building to all this time. And once John says this, he expounds on this truth for us. And he says this to us. He says, God became flesh so that we could know him. God became flesh so that we could know him. I think that's what verses 14 through 18 are really driving home for us. There's something within us that that desires to know God, that desires to understand who he is. It's it's what our hearts deep down are are chasing after. It's what all the relationships in our lives are are driving towards is we want to know others because we want to know God because we were created for relationship. And John tells us here that Jesus shows us who God is and the incarnation, which literally has to do with the idea of becoming flesh, of God becoming flesh. The incarnation happened so that we could know him. God became flesh so that we could know him. I just want to break down that idea very simply. A couple main points This afternoon, the first one is this. The Word becoming flesh is the core miracle of Christmas. The Word becoming flesh is the core miracle of Christmas. There's lots of other miracles you might think about surrounding the Christmas story, but the core and what they're all pointing to is this idea that Jesus, the Word, became flesh. The incarnation of Jesus all that it means is not necessarily encapsulated in those words, the, the word became flesh. It is the core miracle of Christmas, though. I mean, is there any other greater mystery in the world than God becoming man? We wonder how such a thing is, is even possible. Can that be possible? In many ways, Mary had the, the same response when Gabriel first spoke to her in, in Luke chapter 1. This heavenly messenger appears to her, calms her fears, as angels always seem to do, and and then told her in verses 31 through 33 of Luke 1, And behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. To which Mary responds, not with doubt, but with astonishment and and curiosity. And she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's a question that says, that sounds impossible, God, but I know that all things are possible with you. So I want to know, how is this going to happen? And here is how Gabriel describes how the word could become flesh. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's an explanation that's sort of wrapped in mystery, I think. It's a good explanation, but it doesn't answer all of my questions, probably because I don't know that I could fully understand what it means But if you pause and think about what Gabriel says there, it might help us to see the miracle a little bit more clearly, to see that there was a moment in time when Jesus did not exist 
in flesh. From eternity past, that's how he had always existed, not in flesh. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus did not exist in a body, and for, from eternity past, that's how he existed. And then, immediately following that moment, there was a moment that Jesus began to exist in the flesh, in the womb of Mary. Cells began to divide because a child had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was not created, but he was incarnated. He took on flesh. It's also a reminder that the miracle of Christmas happened not just when Jesus was born, but also nine months prior when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. That's, as, as Andrew Peterson sings, the baby in her womb, he was the maker of the moon. He was the author of the faith that could make the mountains move. So if we would be tempted to sort of downplay the miraculous nature of what happened in the coming of Jesus to earth, John reminds us in verse 15 exactly who he has been revealing the word to be. So this is a parenthetical remark. In my version, there are parentheses around verse 15. I think that's, that's right. And in this remark, we're taken back to verses 1 through 13, to those truths. So we see John the Baptist is bearing witness about the word. He's saying that he was greater than him that he, because he was unlike him. John the Baptist says, he's greater than me because he's not like me. He is actually the Messiah. He's, he's the Savior. He's the one that we've been waiting for. I'm just a, a prophet but he is the promised seed of Abraham. He's the king from the line of David. This is the one everyone's been waiting for. He is greater than me. He is the word. He is the Messiah. And not only is he the Messiah, but he's also God. John says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In one sense, John the Baptist was older than Jesus. John the Baptist was born before Jesus was born. And so I think he says this, he was before me, because he wants us to think back to the pre-existence of the word from verses one and two, that the word was in the beginning with God. If we forget who the word is, then the wonder of him becoming flesh will not be surprising to us. So just remember who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the one everyone's been waiting for. And now, he's made flesh. He's the Messiah and he's the mighty God. And so we're set up to be astounded if we really understand what verses 1 through 13 say and what verse 15 reiterates. We're astounded by the fact that the word became flesh. I'd like to extend our streak of J.I. Packer quotes from Knowing God to three weeks in a row. Uh, this is what J.I. Packer says. Here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It's here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle 
and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. We're blessed in our church to have two little babies. It's nice to have little babies around at Christmas so we can remember exactly what it, went, it meant for Jesus to become flesh. But I think Packer in that quote captures what John seems to want us to feel when he uses this, this word flesh. Flesh can carry the idea of, of sinfulness, but John is obviously not talking about sinfulness when he's talking about the sinless Son of God being made flesh. Rather, he's using it to, because flesh can also carry this idea of weakness. Psalm 54, I'm sorry, 56, 4 says that the psalmist says, he will not fear because what can flesh do to me? Flesh can't do anything to me because flesh is weak. Peter, in a strikingly parallel passage, compares the flesh to the word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23, he's writing, he says that who we are in Christ, that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We've been born through the word of God. For, and then he quotes Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. How interesting to talk about flesh being weak and talk about the power of the word and then to think about the word being made flesh. So when the word becomes flesh, he puts on weakness. He does the opposite of what the coming resurrection is going to do for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, that when we resurrect, our perishable bodies must put on the imperishable. And we who are mortal must put on immortality. But the reason that our perishable flesh can become imperishable, and the reason that our mortal, mortal flesh can become immortal is because we who are weak in flesh, we, have, we understand the idea that the word became flesh. The word put on mortality. The word put on weakness. It's because the word lived on earth and died for our sins and rose from the dead three days later, triumphing over sin and death. It's because of all that, because of the fact that God was robed in flesh, in weakness, that we can be saved by his power. The best gifts, I think, are the ones that come with a story once they're opened. Have you ever given a gift and you're more excited to tell them about how you got the gift once they open it than you are them actually opening the gift? Because those are, they're always good stories. It's something about how, you know, I went to... 12 different stores and they were all out and I found the last one at this place because I knew you really wanted it. Or maybe it's something that someone made themselves and it took them months to craft this and they made it just for you. The story is helpful because all of that effort adds value to the gift that is, that's given because the, the deepest value of any gift is found in the love that that gift is meant to convey. It's not the thing itself, right? It's, it really is true that it's the thought that counts because when you get a gift, what's it mean that the person was doing? They were thinking of you. They went out and they bought something and they said, I love you and I want to give you a gift because I was thinking about you. 
I think that when we think about all that it took for God to become flesh, when we get sort of the story behind the gift, we realize who the word was, what it meant for him to become flesh, what it meant for God to send his son, what it meant for Christ to live and to die and to rise again, then we start to get an understanding of the depth of his love for us. And that sort of gets us to the why of the incarnation. If the the core miracle of Christmas is God becoming flesh, then what are the reasons and the results of that miracle? What are the reasons for and the results of of Christmas? And just one way to say it, this will be our second big idea. The reason of Christmas is that God might be with us and reveal himself to us. I'm not sure if that was very clear, but the sort of the reasons and the results of this miracle of Christmas is that God might be with us and reveal himself to us. So it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, among us. he was with us. And then it says, and we've seen his glory. When the word became flesh, it meant that he could dwell among us in a way unlike had ever been experienced before, except maybe when God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, there's something about the physical presence of a person that cannot be imitated or replaced. Andrew and I had the chance to go see Jake and Jessica and Eliana this morning. But why did I do that? I mean, I texted Jake. I knew how big she was. He even gave me a picture. I saw the picture of her. So why, did I, why would I? I don't need to go, right? Of course you need to go. Because I, I've seen the baby in a picture, but there's something about being there, right? There's something significant about being physically present with someone, about giving someone a hug and saying congratulations rather than just typing congratulations, about holding the baby and feeling all nine pounds and three ounces of this little infant. <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the sources of pain at Christmas time is found in the absence of certain people that we love and that we desire to be with. We want to be with certain family and friends, and sometimes we can't because of distance, and th- sometimes we can't because, because of death. And there's a desire to be with people that we love, to be physically present with them. That's just part of who we are, isn't it? That's why a song like I'll Be Home for Christmas, while sort of sappy and nostalgic, still strikes us. This idea that we want to be home, because home isn't necessarily a place, is it? Home is the people that are, inhabit that place. When you think about home, I think Frederick Buechner talks about this. When you think about home, you get a picture sometimes of a house, but immediately after that, you get a picture of the person or persons that are inside that house that make that place your home. And so we want to be around people. And so we can hear a song like, I'll be home for Christmas, and it strikes us. My grandfather told my sister once that they would play that song, or maybe someone performed it uh, when he served in the army in World War II which just seems like cruel and unusual punishment to these soldiers that they would sing this song. And all these young guys are away from their family, maybe some for three or, plus, three or more years. And they want to be home. They want to be with people that they love. 
And all of that speaks to this idea that God created us for relationship, out of relationship, out of the relationship of, of the Trinity. And he understands that, that we are hardwired to want to know him and to be with him, to be present with him. And all of our other relationships, all the desires, the people that we want to be with, that that, that is an echo of our desire to be with him because only God's presence with us can truly satisfy us. And so, because of that, Jesus comes and he dwells with us. The presence of God is a key theme that we've talked about in Scripture. We see God with his people in the Garden of Eden. But sin, of course, causes separation, and Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're cast away from God's presence, and yet God continues to come to and to visit his people until we find him in Exodus and Leviticus, making a way, creating a system of, of laws and sacrifices and rituals that would allow them allow him to dwell among his people. That's, that's what the tabernacle and then later the, the temple, temple represent. They are the place of God's presence right in the middle of his people. He's there with them. He's dwelling with them. It's seen in the cloud and the pillar that led the Israelites and then would one day settle into the tabernacle and settle into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, on the Ark of the Covenant. And that cloud that filled the temple told of God's presence among his people. He was with them. John understands that history, which is why when he writes John 14, he uses a word for God's dwelling. He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that that word could rightly be translated, he tabernacled among us. That God in Christ became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. Jesus is the visible presence of God in the flesh. And he was among his people, not in a cloud, not in a fire, but in a person. And that person was Jesus Christ. Like the presence of God in the temple, Jesus then reveals the glory of God. You see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the presence of God would fill the tabernacle or the temple, it was a wonderful but awe-inspiring and fearful thing because this was God in all of his glory. The pre-existent creator of all the world is now present amongst his creation. And it was a fearful thing. And the same was true of Jesus. But it does seem somewhat surprising that it says, and we have seen his glory. When you think about the incarnation, it, we see his humility. But John says we have seen his glory. We've seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But his glory, as Wesley writes, was veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. His glory is, is glimpsed at some points. We see the mountain of transfiguration. He sort of peels back the flesh to reveal his glory, as it were. And in the resurrection and in the ascension of Jesus, it shines forth. But we don't see a visible glow, no matter what you might see in pictures. There was no visible glow on the infant Jesus. 
the glory of of his birth and his ministry was was veiled. It, he was he was humbled. He he became a man, and instead of the brightness of his glory, we see his glory in a different way. We see his glory in the fact that he came full of grace and truth. That the glory of God is found in the fact that God is full of grace and truth. Jesus shows the goodness and the love and the mercy of God, and he reveals the truth of God about sin and salvation. Jesus shines forth, and he shows all the glory of God that's found in the gospel, the truth of God's grace. And in fact, John highlights the grace. If we jump over the parentheses, he's full of grace and truth. Verse 16, 4, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He doesn't say grace and truth. He doesn't say truth upon truth. He says grace upon grace. John wants to highlight the grace of Jesus in the incarnation. Jesus is said to be so full of grace that it overflows, causing us to receive grace upon grace from him. God comes into the world. The God of all glory this pre-existent creator of everything, comes into the world, what's that going to be like? It's going to be grace. He's going to be filled with grace. Jesus is just and he's righteous and he's holy. He's powerful, all powerful, and he's strong. He's sovereign. But when he comes into the world, what do we see? That he overflows with grace. Just imagine Jesus sort of walking into our world and walking into our lives, walking into our, our souls, as it were. And he comes to be with us, comes to restore relationship with us, and he calls us into relationship with himself, and he comes to us, and when he comes to us, he's just dripping with grace. He embraces us in our sin and our pain and his embrace is filled with grace. So I have this image that came to my mind of Jesus holding us close in grace. And you know how some people just have a smell? You know, when someone gives you a hug and you say, well, that's my grandma or that's my aunt. It just smells like them. I don't, this may sound strange, but Jesus smells like grace. He's just filled with overflowing with grace. He speaks and he speaks the truth and when he speaks it, it's words of grace. We look at his face and when he looks back at us, his eyes and his smile are filled with grace. And from that overflowing, we receive grace upon grace. We need Jesus to dwell among us. But if he doesn't come with grace, it could be a fearful thing. But he comes with grace, and not just grace, but grace upon grace. He's clothed with grace, and that grace reveals the glory and the majesty of God who is above us, but who loves us. And wants to be with us. As you think about the people that you want to be with, that you want to dwell with, you want to share holidays or parties with, 
God wants to be with us. So the core miracle of Christmas is that the word was made flesh. And as we think about the results of that or the, the reasons for it, we could say that the, God does it so that he might be with us and that he might reveal himself to us. Three thoughts then about this gracious coming of Jesus in the flesh. Thinking more about practical application in some ways. The first of these thoughts, the coming of Jesus in flesh has opened the door for the present indwelling of the Spirit. The coming of Jesus in the flesh, maybe we could even say in the past, because it's a historical event, the coming of Jesus in the flesh in the past has opened the door for the present indwelling of the Spirit. So this is just a quick reminder of what we've been looking at in Acts and what we also looked at in John 13 and 14, that Jesus must come, he must descend to the earth, live this life, then die for our sins, provide salvation, and then ascend to the Father so that the Spirit can descend and indwell us. That the, the physical presence of Jesus, while wonderful, is that even more so now we have his spirit with us who is also fully God and that the spirit has come and he dwells in each one of us. He's in us through faith in Jesus and we become the temple. This whole idea of God's presence comes full circle that there's the temple where the glory of God is that Jesus tabernacles among us but then when the spirit comes on the day of Pentecost we now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the tabernacle. Jesus came so that he could live and die and rise again and then leave. And in his leaving, it means that we can go to the Father, and that he can go to the Father and he can ask the Father to pour out the Spirit on all his children so that the Spirit can be with us always to the very end of the age. So the coming of Jesus in the flesh in the past has opened the door for the present indwelling of the Spirit which also reminds us that the coming of Jesus in the flesh in the past gives us the hope of his future return. The fact that he came and then left also reminds us that he's coming again. So we love the Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We are filled with God's presence, and the Spirit is no less God than the Father or the Son. But we also long to be with the Father and long to be with Jesus. I think this may have something to do with the fact that we are these embodied souls and we long to see God and to know him, to see him face to face and to be known by him. And one day that will be reality. Like those who waited long for the, the first advent, we are advent, we are awaiting for the second advent of Christ, the time when he returns. And with him will come the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And as Revelation 22 says, the dwelling place of God will be found among men and women. And that's the culmination of the presence of God amongst us, that he is with us for all time. So the coming of Jesus reminds us that the Spirit is with us now, but it also reminds us that Christ is returning to take us to himself so that we will be with him always. And that is our great, great longing we're thankful that Jesus dwelt with us. We're thankful that he dwells with us now through the abiding Holy Spirit, but we long for that day that he dwells with us in the new heavens and the new earth. And then just a final practical thought, that the coming of Jesus in the flesh shows us how to minister to and bless others. 
that the, the incarnation tells us how to minister to and how to bless others in our lives. Jesus comes to bless us. Jesus comes full of grace and truth. He comes to bring salvation. And therefore, he teaches us what it looks like for us to do the same as his, um, as his children. Just a couple thoughts. We, we physically come and dwell with people. There's something about physicality, right? Why do we travel to see family and friends at Christmas? I'm going to do this. Next Sunday, we're going to get in a car and we're going to drive to Ohio. Why would I do that? Because I want to be physically present with people. Um, because my grandmother is sick and I want to be with her for Christmas because I don't know what the future holds. I want to be with my family. I want to bless my mom by bringing my kids because that's what she wants for Christmas probably more than anything else. We physically come and we be with people and, and that's how we minister to others. We live in an age that's so connected and so disconnected. It's very connected digitally, but very disconnected physically. We're physically absent from one another. We all see this. We go to restaurants. We watch couples sit down and have a whole meal and never look at each other because they look at their phone. And we're lucky that we saw them because we were looking at our phone probably. We do this. My kids call me out on it all the time. So this is important. It, there's something about being physically present with people. It communicates love in a way that, that some things cannot. Eye contact, a hug, a cup of coffee, a shared meal together. There's something about blessing others and ministering others that flows out of being physically present with them. And so in the spirit of Christmas in the spirit of Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us, I would encourage you to find ways to do that and start in your home to put phones away and, and turn the television off and truly dwell with one another. Be present. Be physically present. Not just physically present though, but, but emotionally present and, and cognitively present and aware of the people that are around you. That that's where blessing begins. That's where encouragement begins. And then find ways to do that in, outside of your home, to bless others by being physically present with them. Jesus teaches us that. He teaches us to meet people where they're at. Jesus teaches us, in, as we minister to others, to meet them where they are at. Jesus didn't ask us to come to him, did he? Because we couldn't. We weren't able to. We didn't want to. Rather, he came to us. He came and dwelt among us. And in a similar way, we're not always asking people to come to us, but rather we go to them. The temple in the Old Testament was a place where everyone was supposed to come and see. Come and see the glory of God. Come and see the place where Christ dwells. Where's the temple now? We are the temple. And so we are able to, to take the temple to others, to bless them. Jesus calls us as spirit-indwelt temples, not to shout to the world, come and see. What's he tell us to do? To go and tell. Go and tell everyone of his grace. And we do that as we physically are present with people and meet them where they are at. This is always a challenge for churches, isn't it? It's so much easier to say, come to our event. Come to the thing that we're doing. Maybe one of the blessings of not having a building is that we are forced in some way to be like Christ and to go to where people are at. We have to meet them where they are. And so we learn how to minister by meeting people where they're at. 
And then finally, when we come to them, we come in humility with grace and truth. If we want to minister and bless other, to and bless others, we come in humility with grace and truth. We read from Philippians, Philippians 2, a great meditation around Christmas. To have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ humbled himself to come and to be among us. We come to others in humility, and we come with grace and truth. We speak the truth to others, but we also help people to see the greatness of the glory of God by displaying his grace. If Jesus gives us grace upon grace, then doesn't it make sense that if we want to show who Christ is, that when we meet people, we would meet them with grace upon grace, that we would be dripping with grace, that the smell of us, say they smell like the grace of Jesus. God became flesh. Why? So that we could know him. And we come to people in the flesh, just as Jesus did. We come dripping with grace and we become we come filled with his presence. Why? So that they would know him. So that they would know who God is. This word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The word who shows the glory of God, a glory that's found in grace and in truth. Let's bow our heads for a moment of silence and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we are reminded of what it means that you have become flesh, the miracle that that is, the display of your grace that it is. And, and yet, Lord, we, we need to know it more clearly. So I pray, God, that you would help us to understand in a deeper way, to know and to, to feel in our hearts and our souls what it means that Christ came to this earth full of grace and truth to save us. Lord, and help us to be good representations of who you are, that as we live this life, we would not be so distracted that we miss opportunities to be really, truly present with people and that we would meet people exactly where they're at, and that they would find in us the character of Christ, that they would see a, a humility, that they would hear the truth from our lips, and above everything else, Lord, that they would know that we have been touched by the grace of God, and that we want to extend the grace of God to everyone that we meet. Well, may that be our testimony this Christmas season, and even throughout our whole lives. Thank you for sending Christ, and thank you for 
the grace that we find in him. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.